make an announcement that's very exciting to us here this morning. After much prayer, we have invited Pastor Franz Bischoff to prayerfully uh, consider joining our pastoral staff again, and he has agreed uh, to do that. So Pastor Franz and Monica, yep. They're going to be uh, returning to Modesto from New Zealand. That's got to be a God thing. And uh, so that's what they're going to do. They have obviously a great love for this body, a love for you. And Franz is going to be returning to uh, be kind of overseeing our area of pastoral care, which involves counseling, hospital visitations, a lot of other things um, in, in that kind of that a category of things, and so this is what he's returning to do. Um, you can look for Franz and Monica and their two children, Stephen and Allison. Uh, start to see them around here somewhere in the latter part of June as they uh, transition over to get settled in. And then a couple of just points of detail so <clears throat> you don't uh, wonder. Franz is not replacing anyone currently on staff. We've been understaffed for a while. And um, since David left for San Francisco to start the Calvary there. And um, so he's going to be coming, and all the other pastors are going to continue in their responsibilities. And so those that you have uh, know to be over certain areas of, uh, and say, okay, that's the pastor I go to for this, none of that is going to be uh, changing. You can continue to do that. It's also important for us to <clears throat> let you know that in terms of the work in uh, New Zealand, uh, Pastor Franz and Monica are leaving there and returning here with the blessing of Pastor Mark. They've been involved in the Bible College there at, in New Zealand. Uh, the, there's a, uh, they come back here with, with the blessing of Pastor Mark. We will continue to be very supportive of, of Pastor Mark as a church fellowship, uh, as we already are, and the work that's going on in New Zealand. So... Uh, we're very uh, excited about the work that's there and is going to continue on. And so continue to keep the Bischoff family in prayer as they make considerable preparations uh, to return home. So we're very thrilled about all of this. This is what thrilled <clears throat> looks like. Um, <laughs> listen, I'd grab a tambourine and start dancing up here like David did, but he's Jewish and I'm a Scot. So two entirely different things, but we get equally excited, but um, sometimes you wouldn't know it. Let's stand together and let's turn in our Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3 this morning. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. If you just wave to them and get their attention, they'll be happy to get a Bible into your hands. And that way you can listen to the Word of God and also read along with your own eyes. And then we want everybody in the whole wide world to own a Bible and to read it. And so if you don't own a Bible, please make that a gift from the Lord to you today. The old saying, you show me a Bible that's worn out and I'll show you a Christian who isn't. And so wear that Bible out. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. The word of the Lord. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for? And hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And consider that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking of them, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, 
which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Let's stop there and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, this eternal living word. And we pray, Lord, that as this passage in your book is intended to accomplish something in our lives, to build something in, Lord, we pray that Every reason that it's in your book would be built into our lives this morning. And we don't have the ability to do that, Lord. I don't have the ability to teach that well. And, Lord, we don't have the ability to learn that well. And so it requires a work of your Holy Spirit. And that's what we ask for. We pray for those that stand before you for whom this is the first time they have ever read these verses and ever studied it. We pray, Lord, that you give them revelation from your pa- this passage. And, Lord, for those of us who know this passage very, very well, we pray that you would give it a great freshness to us and help us to have, receive insights from you into the passage and to establish an even greater appreciation for your wisdom, for your will, your plans for our lives, Lord, and this universe. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As the Apostle Peter closes this, uh, begins to close this letter of his, he does so by reminding us as Christians that the current heavens and earth are one day going to be dissolved. And not only that, but that they will then uh, one day give way to the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. And he not only speaks to us of, of that great truth that is going to mark the future of, of human history, but then he further tells us in this passage how we are to live for uh, eternity in a world that is very, very temporal. You notice the Holy Spirit's description of the coming end of this current heavens and the earth. And it's not talking about the heaven of heavens where God is, the third heaven as it's referred to, but it's talking about the universe, the sun, the star, the moons, the whole universe and the earth itself. One day, all of it, because it is tainted by sin, that is very, very fallen, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden, one day... There is going to come an end to it. And the description is very, very graphic in verses 10, 11, and 12. We notice in verse 10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise. So there's going to be a sound associated with all of this. And the, and the word noise there is, is it's used in, in the Greek. It speaks of a kind of a rushing wind of like having an arrow fly by by your ear, talking about examples from there. Uh, day in their culture. So there'll be this great kind of uh, blowing of the wind in terms of, of sound. The elements, we're told in verse 10, will melt with fervent heat. Also in verse 10, the earth and all of the works that are in it will be burned up. Verse 11, all of these things will be dissolved. And he repeats much of this description again in verse 12. In other words, all of the creation is one day it's going to burn. It's all going to burn. Now, when I became a new Christian and started walking with the Lord, that happened in 1980. And in 1980, the early 80s, there was a phrase that was very, very commonly used by Christians concerning uh, everything that we owned or possessed or the material world that was around us. And it wasn't unusual to hear somebody say, well, it's all going to burn. And that was a, a very healthy attitude related to the material world. So let's say you have your car, you go over to shop at Costco, and you put yourself in that parking spot, and there's not a ding on it. But you're trying to be a good Christian and not take up two spots like some people do. Uh, if you do that, don't have any stickers on your car especially the one that says others like Gail showed <laughs> taking up two spots. I mean, come on. Anyway, ah, like Gail said, all those people, they live in Texas, those Christians. But, but you park there 
and you come out and you can see the new ding on the, on the car door and you can see the car it matches right there. It's the white paint on the red. Anybody, how in the world could they do that? And rather than kind of blowing a gasket over it, uh, in those days people just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, well, it's all going to burn. And it doesn't mean we don't take care of the things that God has given to us because we should be good stewards of those things. But there is a recognition that everything that's around us in the material realm, that it, 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 it's not the most significant thing in life. And ultimately, it is going to burn. It is all going uh, to destroy. And it does represent a very uh, healthy attitude on the part of Christians toward the material world and toward material things. I don't hear that phrase very often, and I haven't for many, many years, not even a contemporary version of it. And I hope it doesn't mean that in the last 30 years that the attitude of the body of Christ toward the material world as, as opposed to the spiritual world has changed and that uh, we've come to value the material world more than, than we used to value it uh, to the neglect of the spiritual uh, realm. And I hope that isn't the case at all related to it. But I think it's a good thing, not a bad thing, for that at least that attitude, if not the words that are coming out of our mouth, there's that recognition when there is something concerning a material thing in our life, that recognition, well, it is all going to burn one day. The progression... Of all of these events, he encapsulates in uh, basically five words in verse 10, and he calls it the day of the Lord. Now, we see that phrase, day of the Lord, used frequently in the New Testament, and sometimes it refers to something very specific. It can refer to the great tribulation period. It can refer to the rapture of the church. And then sometimes, as it's used here, it can refer to uh, all of those things and more, and that's what it does. The day of the Lord, as it's mentioned here, it refers to all end-time events, including the rapture of the church, followed by a seven-year tribulation period when God pours out a righteous wrath and indignation against an evil world that has rejected him and his son. That is then followed by the second coming of Jesus to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. That is then followed by a thousand-year reign of Christ on this very earth. And following that is a white throne judgment. And after that final white throne judgment, there is then this particular event, the creation of a new heaven and a new earth following the destruction of the first one. As I mentioned um, last week, this coming of a kind of a fiery end to this current universe, God isn't going to have to like take some spinach and eat it and say, boy, this is going to be hard to destroy all of this and, and to have it melt with a fervent heat and disintegrate and, and all of this. It'll be very, very easy for the Lord uh, to do that. All that's required for all of this to simply disintegrate, everything that is in this world is for God to just simply release his hand, his holding together hand uh, upon it. And we mentioned a little bit of this last week, but I wanted to elaborate just a little bit more on this point this week as well. That concerning every atom in the universe, the Bible declares of Jesus, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by him, Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him everything consists. And the word consists means it is held together. Jesus holds everything together, the Bible uh, teaches. I was reading an article uh, speaking to uh, subatomic structure um, because uh, uh, Joel Mallory and Dan, his father, they attend first service. They caught me at the back door, and, and we got in a discussion on all of this, and they kind of got me going on it uh, a little bit. So I thought, I'm going to search out a new name that's given to this, and I'll bring it out in just a minute. But let me read a little bit of this article uh, to you. I know it will be very exciting. Um, it said, Neutrons have no charge 
and the mass of one AMU. Unlike the protons, neutrons cannot exist outside the nucleus indefinitely as they become unstable and break down. Within one nucleus, there can be many protons and neutrons all in close proximity to one another. The number of neutrons in a nucleus ranges from zero to over a hundred. You may wonder why neutrons exist. Some of you may be simply wondering what free samples they will be offering at Costco in the aisles <laughs> after the service. But for those of you who have been wondering why neutrons exist, they have no charge, so can they do anything? And the answer is yes. Neutrons are very important. Remember that opposites attract and likes repel. So then how can several protons stay clumped together in the dense nucleus of an atom? It would seem as if the protons would repel and scatter the nucleus. However, there is a stronger nuclear force that holds the nucleus together. This incredible force causes nu nucleons to attract each other with much greater strength than the electric force can repel them, but only over extremely short distances. A delicate balance exists between the number of pr protons and neutrons. Protons which are attracted to one another via the strong force, but simultaneously repelled by their electromagnetic charges, cannot exist in great numbers within the nucleus without the stabilizing action of neutrons, which are attracted via the strong force but are not charged. Conversely, neutrons lend their inherent inability uh, instability, rather, to the nucleus, and too many will destabil, uh, destabilize it. So, wow. <laughs> I'm buying the tape. Now, what's the big deal about this? There might not be any big deal, but I think there's a big deal. The scientific explanation for what holds the atom together, and it is without scientific explanation, is that it is held together by something they have now given the title, the great force. It's the only explanation for why every atom that makes up your body, the chair you're sitting on, everything that makes up this world, the only reason that it just doesn't explode into its own mini nuclear bomb and dissolve and melt with a fervent heat and a hissing in our ears as it does so is because the great force is holding all of it together, exactly as... Paul wrote by the Holy Spirit to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 1, 2,000 years ago. And one day Jesus will simply release that force, that effort that he has involved in, and then what will happen to the heavens and the earth will look exactly like what Peter is describing uh, here 2,000 years ago. I want you to also notice in that uh, verse uh, 10 there, that the word will is repeated four times. This will happen, and Peter wants us to know that. So here we have history in advance. It will, it will, it will, it will happen. And then I want you to notice the first word of verse 11, which is the word therefore. In other words, this knowledge concerning the future of the physical world and physical universe is supposed to have a practical effect upon our lives as Christians. Somehow, it's not just, oh, now I know in case I end up on double jeopardy and I get the daily double, and this is the very question that is being asked. I now know the answer. It isn't just to feed us kind of insignificant uh, trivia. It is this information is supposed to produce a certain uh, thing in our lives as Christians. It's to affect uh, our thinking. It's to affect how we live. It's to affect how we process life. It's to affect 
our priorities in life. It's to affect everything about our life. And if we really believe that this is the ultimate end of the current heavens and and earth, then, uh, uh, then to realize that for all of its beauty, this creation that's around us, and it is fabulously beautiful and, and wonderful, even in its fallen condition, but to realize that it's only temporal. And when I realize as a Christian that it's only temporal, then I will not take and invest my life into the creation supremely, But instead, I'll look and say, that's a waste of time in the sense that it's one day going to melt with a fervent heat. And so I want to invest my life not in what is temporal and one day going to pass from the scene, but I want to invest my life in what is eternal, the things that are going to outlive the heavens and the earth. And that speaks to the kingdom of God and our place in the kingdom of God, his calling on our lives, his gifting that he's given to each one of us as Christians, a gift for the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world. And the Christian life that plays no part in the advancement of the kingdom of God in this world and occurring through obedience to God's word, through obedience to his calling upon our lives, is a Christian that is living as if this world is eternal and that the kingdom of God is temporal when exactly the opposite is true. And that person's priorities would be completely upside down, and this passage is intended to uh, correct that. And it really leads, if I am living supremely for this world, to the neglect of the advancement of the kingdom of God, that's a sure path to a very, very shallow uh, life, a very, very empty life, and one day to a life of deep regret. That's the truth. Sometimes, you know, you can listen to some, someone like me say something like that and you say, well, he's a preacher. He ought to say that. And the Word of God is the Word of God. It ought to say that. But then sometimes we don't, we don't take it seriously. If I am spending my life as a Christian and the kingdom of God is not advancing in some way by virtue of my existence, I am wasting my life. And I am living a life that is so far below the life that God has intended for us. And because that is true, and because there is so much regret at the end of a misspent life, and and Peter writes here, and he says, listen, this is going to be the end of all things, but I don't want... when." When eternity comes and you witness all of these things, I don't want that to be a season of regret for you, but I want your priorities to be right. I want you to be involved in the advancement of the kingdom of God so that you're never in that place. And thankfully, that's what he proceeds to do now in verses 11 through 16 of this passage. That therefore, this knowledge of of the history in advance concerning the destruction of the heavens and the earth, it's supposed to have a practical effect upon our lives as Christians. Well, we say since all of these things are going to be dissolved, Peter says, well, what manner of persons ought we to be? Certainly not a materialist. Certainly not one who lives solely or even supremely for the material realm. Jesus said in his ministry, he said, take heed and beware of covetousness the ungodly desire for more. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. What? Well, that would collapse the economies of the world. And it would have to give way to to a whole new way of people looking at existence and life and how we interact with one another. But it's the truth. Life does not consist in the abundance of the things that we possess. That's a dead-end street. And so it is basically Jesus saying the polar opposite of kind of the pop culture um, encapsulated in the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I assume, I hope nobody puts that on their truck or their car seriously. I hope it's tongue-in-cheek. I could be misguided. I tend to think the best of people. 
But, but Jesus teaches the exact opposite related to that. Peter also tells us, second, that this knowledge of, of the future of the world and this realization of its coming end should result in a life of holy conduct and godliness. He tells us that in verse 11. And holy conduct refers to holiness in the Bible. It means separation. And so it means to be separated from something. So obviously what he's talking about here is in light of the coming destruction of the world and the universe has created fallen, created realm that's around us, then there will be a separation from the sin that marks this world, but also a separation from the upside-down priorities that are um, promulgated in, in, this, in this world. He then speaks also about godliness, and that, speaks, that word speaks to our devotion to God, uh, a life that's devoted to pleasing God. So holiness is two things. It is a separation from something, but it is a separation also to something. And so he's saying in light of the fact that all of this is going to be destroyed, there should be a separation from sin, from world, from the world of, of living supremely for the material realm, and it should be a separation then to God. And we consider it a privilege uh, to be able to do that because that's a life that looks like Jesus. The definition of holiness in the Bible, the definition of separateness, to be in the world but not of the world, is Jesus. No holier life was ever lived in human history. And so that is a description of Jesus where he separated himself from the world. He was not conformed by this world, by its priorities, by its lusts, by its sins. And then further, because we're going to give our heart affection to something or someone, further he kept his heart and his devotion uh, for, for the Father. And, of course, Jesus' life is the most attractive life that's ever been lived in the world. And so as we simply obey the Word of God and as we obey God's call upon our life, whatever the cost that might be upon our, uh, to our life, it isn't the easiest life in the world to live, but it's the greatest life to live. And it's a privilege to live it because it's to live a life like Christ. And one of the things about obedience, and I think that makes obedience in our life, sometimes people look and say, well, you know, here's the preachers up there and say, you've got to obey God and all these things. Oh, that's true. And obedience is very, very important. But it's a little more nuanced than that, and there's a little more depth to just obeying these things because they happen to be written in God's book. That would be enough, but he gives a little more explanation than that. We are a part of a kingdom in this world, and it's called the kingdom of God. As Christians, we are citizens in that kingdom. And every time you and I do something in obedience to the word of God, God's kingdom is manifest in this world. Someone has said the kingdom of God is an invisible kingdom that is made visible by the obedience of God's people. So there's that understanding as Christians, as we obey. Every time you obey God's word, it de- the priorities, the quality of life is so vastly different from the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God that when you obey God's commandments in any setting, where, whether with a family or in school or at, at, at home or in a workplace or whatever and out wherever we might be in, in life, you obey the word of God in the context of the fallenness of this world. There is immediately this burst of the kingdom of God that just explodes right on the scene. And everybody becomes aware immediately, we just saw another kingdom right before our eyes in action. And we just saw another human being that's being fashioned by a different world than the one that's fashioning everybody else we know. We have just witnessed a citizen of another kingdom. And God gets glorified when that happens in our lives. So you go into some competitive environment a parking spot at the mall at Christmas time. And here you are, you get it, you get the tie here, and, uh, but it's not an intersection where the person on the right has the lawful, and the, and the whole thing, 
and you let them go first. Boom. The kingdom of heaven explodes on the scene. The person who takes the spot in front of you realizes that person is nothing like me because I'd have never given it up. I've just met someone who's being fashioned by something different than fashions me. When you forgive another person at tremendous expense to yourself and people know that has happened, then all of a sudden the kingdom of God explodes on the scene, undeniably on the scene. And there's the recognition that that person belongs to a different kingdom than the one that I belong to and is being fashioned by a different king. And it's powerful, powerful stuff, especially for Christians like us who have a desire for the whole world to know our king and to become a part of our kingdom. And the realization of the fact that if they ever get to see this other kingdom, the kingdom of God, enough in contrast to the kingdoms of this world, they will begin to realize there's no comparison between the two and long then to become a part of the kingdom of God. And so this obedience allows that to happen. This holiness allows that to happen in the world that we live in. And I'd like to be quick to add that this life that Peter describes here, the Christian life of obedience, is not some, you know, grim existence. It's the greatest life that a person could ever live because it is to live like Christ. And it is to live with the knowledge that my life is a blessing to God. And even if it doesn't bless anyone else, that is enough for the child of God. The Christian life, at least to me, and I know I'm not alone. I was talking with a staff member earlier this week on the same issue. The Christian life is so glorious that I would choose to live it if there was no heaven after this. As God is my witness, I would choose to live this life if there were no eternity, no eternal reward, no heaven on the other side of this life. That's how good this life is. I've lived in both kingdoms. I've lived in the kingdom of the world. I've been fashioned by it. I immersed myself in it. And then I've lived in the kingdom of God. So I have a point of comparison related to it. I've looked at clouds from both sides now, from win and lose and still somehow. So I know both of them on that. I remember it related to my own life before committing my life to the Lord. I had attained, materially speaking, more than anything, anyone that I knew of in my family. I was married to a beautiful wife, and I'm still married to her. We had one daughter and another daughter on the way. Uh, we had a, a beautiful home in one of the most beautiful parts of the whole wide world. And we had stepped up into that home by fixing up an entry-level home and then moving up to this next one and then fixing it. We had two cars that were paid for. I had a great job, great job security in the job that I had. Had great health and sports and basketball like a maniac, basketball like a maniac, playing all the time and hobbies and all of these different kinds of things and interests. And I I attained on my own small level, I attained to everything that was supposed to satisfy. And one day I said to Karen, after, after everything is here, I mean, extended family that's a blessing, it's all there, this is supposed to quench all of the thirsts and, and now. And I said to her, I'm going back to church. I said, I'm going to go back to God. Because if this does not satisfy, then I know that spending the rest of my life upgrading each of these things will not satisfy as well. And I went back to church where I knew to go from my upbringing, and the rest is, as they say, uh, history. And I know exactly what St. Augustine meant when he wrote concerning God, "'You have made us for yourself, O Lord.'" 
Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There really is a cross-shaped hole in the heart of every person that can only be filled by God and by the Lord Jesus. And boy, does he fill it. And if you're in that place today, he will fill that. We live in the country that is the epicenter of living for the material world. And it's just disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And your search will end where God knows it needs to end, and that is by putting your faith in Christ this morning. The third thing that he mentions here is this realization that all of this is one day going to give way to a new heavens and a new earth, is it will result in a life of looking for the coming of the day of the Lord, he says in verse 12, uh, and beginning with the rapture of the church. So it produces an eternal perspective in our lives, that we realize this isn't all that there is. How depressing would that be? I mean, I talk to Christians all of the time, and they say, I don't know how people make it without God. And yet somehow we made it not too well without God. But once you come to know the Lord, and I mean, you look at how, how, do, you, how do you get out of bed every day not knowing God in, in the condition of the world that we're in? And, and so, but there's this whole realization that this isn't all that there is, that the Lord is returning. We do have this eternal uh, perspective and, um, and when that, the word that's used there in verse 12 for looking, it speaks of anticipation, it speaks of expectation. So it's like someone who's looking for something on their tiptoes. It's kind of the word that would be used for a bride on her wedding day looking for her groom, which is exactly what the body of Christ is doing, waiting for the return of the groom of Jesus for us. And so this, all of this recognition, it produces a looking for the coming of the day of the Lord. And also in verse 12, there is the realization that that realization that all of this is one day going to pass away. It results in a life of hastening the coming day of the Lord. And the word hastening means to cause something to happen soon. You say, what are, what are you talking about? You mean I can have a part in hastening these events forward? Yes, that's exactly what Peter is saying here. We say, how in the world do you do that? Sharing the gospel with people. Just keep waiting for that fullness of the Gentiles to come in. That one last person that's going to get saved that God knows will be the last one before the rapture of the church and then boom, we're out of here. Every time we pray with someone to receive the Lord, you know, in the sanctuary or wherever, it's just, just wait for that half second afterwards. Because I mean, the, the fullness of the Gentiles could happen here as well as anywhere. So we're happy for it, and, but every, there's, that kind of, there's that kind of anticipation with every bit of that. And so that the sharing the gospel with people, being faithful in God's call upon our life, that strengthens the kingdom of God and the advancement of the kingdom of God, people coming into that kingdom, and, and so it hastens. And, of course, our prayers and, and our, our uh, godly life. There is no meaning to life, ultimate meaning to a life that's not lived for something eternal uh, in the midst of all of this temporal, materialistic world. And, and, and sometimes it can take a person a little while for that light to go on, but there is no meaning. I'm just encumbering the ground. I'm just eating food and using up energy in this world if my life is not being used in some way to advance the kingdom of God. That's where fulfillment is found. That's where meaning and purpose is found. And all of that happens right where God has put us in our, our little place in the world. But that recognition, I want to obey God, I want to live for God, I want to speak for God, I want to be used by for God here, that's what I'm living for. Yes, this puts food on the table as well, but this is the big picture behind all of this. I think about our own very uh, very own Dr. Bigelow here in the fellowship and a very highly esteemed uh, doctor in our community and successful and all. And, and here he is uh, just recently in Cambodia with the medical clinics and the whole thing to him is, of course, to help people medically and all, but to have him hear the gospel. That's the thing that, 
drives his heart and his passion. And now, just recently down and returning from Mexico here and the clinics that went on down there to let people hear about the gospel and for their needs to be met and for them to see the kingdom of God through him and the team that he's with. And ultimately, that's what happens in our lives is we do all of these other things in life in order to do this because this is what becomes most important to us. The, number five, this realization that all of this is one day going to give way to a new heavens and a new earth, it gives us a beautiful and confidence and a hope that this sin-tainted world isn't going to go on indefinitely all around, forever and ever, that one day it will come to an end and it will be replaced by a world and a universe where there is only righteousness. I just did that for all of you. We don't have any idea the toll that unrighteousness takes upon us every single day. Even if we are not engaging in unrighteousness, the toll that unrighteousness takes upon our mind, our emotions, our bodies, our spirit every single day. One day, no more war, no more crime, no more violence, no more victims, no more disease, no more death, no more poverty, no more pride of man, none of these things that we are constantly having to deal with and the consequences of it or the threat of it or the potential of it every moment of every day that we're awake. And one day there won't be any of it in that environment. And that is what is coming, just pure, unbroken, beautiful righteousness. And then number 6 in verse 14, there's the real, this realization that all this is one day going to give way to a new heaven and a new earth. It causes us to be diligent to be found by Him in peace. So that when the rapture occurs, that we are walking in a peace-based relationship with God. You say, how in the world do you do that? Well, Peter tells us, by being without spot and without blemish. In other words, we're not all wrapped up in the sins and the wrong priorities of the world all around us, but we're staying busy about God's business, obeying His Word, growing in our relationship with Him, and thus when that rapture occurs, we are at peace with Him and ready to go. And so all of this has a purifying effect upon our lives as Christians. And I know that most of you would just be naturally pure without any uh, additional stimuli or help. But uh, then there's the rest of us, that we need every motivation uh, possible. And so this whole idea the Lord is going to come back any time provides just one more outstanding um, influence for uh, holiness within our lives. And then in verses 15 and 16, finally there is the remembering that the long-suffering of our God is salvation and the fact that God delays in bringing his judgment on the world simply because he wants more people to be saved, just as Peter uh, spoke of in this passage that we looked at last week. But it means so much to him that he wants to repeat that. God is, again, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And so God's delay in all of this is simply so that more men and women and children would put their faith in Christ and be saved and that we would realize that that's the only reason he delays his coming and keep that our focus as well. Peter makes mention of uh, Paul here. Mary is not uh, in, in this particular passage. But, but the apostle, she, Peter mentions the apostle Paul here is declaring the same things. As, as he is teaching here. And indeed, the Apostle Paul did. For example, Romans chapter 2, verse 4, Paul wrote, Or do you despise the riches of God's goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? God's long-suffering with us is so that one day we'll wake up and realize, wow, God, you should have, you know, snuffed me every old which way for a long time. 
but you've been patient with me so that I could be saved. I love you all the more for it, Lord. There's a couple things I want us to notice before we close here in Peter's mention of Paul. He calls Paul, in verse 15, our beloved brother. And that says a lot about Peter because there was a point in time in the ministry of Peter and Paul when Peter was making like a really bad mistake publicly as an apostle in the early church. And Paul had to publicly confront him. That's not an easy thing. That's not an easy thing for a man to accept. And then a man in his position. But it makes us respect Peter all the more and really love him all the more is that that rebuke that Paul, he realized he forced Paul to have to rebuke him in that way, that he never held it against Paul. And I don't think anybody's going to last in the ministry any length of time if we don't get used to the fact that sometimes we're going to get rebuked in the course of this whole thing while we're, you know, learning just what to do. And the other thing that's a great encouragement in verse uh, 16 is that he put the writing of Paul on a level with the rest of the Scriptures. That's how... Uh, Paul's writings were being viewed even as at this particular time, inspired word of God. And then also in verse 16, he mentioned that Paul's letters were not always easy to understand. I am so glad I'm not the only person that felt that. I remember when I was a new Christian back then, only the King James. There are no new King James. I don't know, maybe the NIV was out, but... You know, I couldn't lower myself to become involved in the NIV. (laughs) Tom, my good Scottish brother over there, he uses the NIV periodically. But he will not have the crown the rest of us have in heaven. I think (laughs) we can all be confident of that. But you would read this in in the sentence structure and... Uh, is archaic because everything was kind of backwards and then the words were like 16th, 17th century words and the whole thing. And I mean, I would just look at it like I would look at the Pythagorean theorem or some kind of math or chemistry. My eyes would glaze. God, please help me to understand what Paul is saying here. You go to the book of Ephesians, the whole first chapter, one sentence. And he's building thought upon a thought upon thought. And I can't figure out the first thought to know how he's even trying to get to the second thought, much less the end of the chapter. And it's good to know that, especially if you're new to the Bible, that ultimately the Bible opens up to us because the author will do that for us, the Holy Spirit. But not everything just comes effortlessly to us from the Bible. Some of it requires hard work on our part and, and a sincere study on our part to understand some of these different doctrines. But they're worth it. And then over time, pretty soon, not only do we understand them, but they become some of the most important part of our relationship with the Lord and our understanding of the Lord. So it will happen. So when you read the Bible as a new Christian or you're fairly new to the Bible and you look and say, I hardly understand anything here. Well, you said hardly understand. So it means you understood something. And so you understand that. And the next time you'll understand even more and God will build upon those things all the way until one day we'll be in heaven. And we talks about these hard things. One of the things that he's talking about is the very thing he's talking about here. And that is eschatology, the study of end times. That's a big subject. And it doesn't just, you just don't learn it in a day. And, but over time you learn it and then it becomes a great blessing in, in our Christian lives. I remember one time years ago, by the way, I'm, I'm done. I'm just continuing to talk. So one time I was at a pastor's conference many, many years ago, and I walked in. It was one of the first pastor's conferences I attended at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And I walked in the room, and there was a guy I went to elementary school with down at Costa Mesa. Ran into him. His name was Dave. I saw him in the room, and as soon as there was a break, I made a beeline over to him. I said, I didn't even know you were saved, let alone a pastor. Did you break in or something? You're just, like, looking for a purse to steal or what? So um, we got to chatting about it, and he was a pastor down in, uh, in, I think, in Southern California somewhere, and all we were talking about things, and and somehow we got on the subject of what he was going to teach the following Sunday morning. He brought it up. He says, I'm going to teach the rapture on the rapture this coming Sunday morning. And, and uh, he said, can you recommend a book on that? I said, well, you know, what do you know about the rapture? I don't know anything about it. I said, oh, this is like Wednesday. So you've got like three days to cram on the rapture before you're going to do a sermon. I don't recommend it. 
uh, on things. And I don't know whether he did or not. God would have the grace for it even if he did on things. But sometimes things do take a little time. Be patient with yourself and, and be patient with the word of God related to all of that. So the world, this is how the world ends. You ought to know that. There's not going to be like a bunch of crazed egomaniacs that are at the head of all the nations. They push all the red buttons that they have in their dumb office and all this blows up. Human history is not controlled by man. God is working it toward his God-appointed end. There is a loving, purposeful God behind all of this. And he waits. We have another Sunday for you to get saved simply because he wants you to have another Sunday to be saved. And so, but one day all of this will disintegrate and give way to a new heavens and a new earth. And that does something important in our lives. And all of this does something important in our lives in terms of this world that we live in that's so dominated by the material to not let it become the master passion of our life or to fashion our priorities, but to be busy about God's business. That's all that we're going to carry into the new heaven and into the new earth. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for the encouragements of this passage and we thank you for the exhortations of this passage. We thank you that we do have a privilege of representing you and your kingdom in this world. We thank you that our life is so meaningful because our obedience to you isn't just a blessing to us, but that it impacts other people as well and that you give that kind of importance to our lives. We want the whole world to know you, Lord, to know about your kingdom and to become a part of it. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of that work of your spirit in this world in these last days. And Lord, for any of us that stand before you today where we are completely misguided in our priorities, even though a Christian, completely misguided in how we spend our time and as we would look at our lives and see, to be honest, that all of it is just going into what is ultimately going to burn. We pray that today would be a day where you would just speak to them by your Holy Spirit, bring them out of the terrible regret that such a life ends in as a Christian. And Lord, bring them, show them their gifting, show them their calling, bring them, Lord, and change their thinking about everything and bring them into your will and your purposes for their life and use this morning is a part of that. And as they seek you for this new thing in their life, we pray that you would meet them where they are and then walk them into your good and your acceptable and your perfect will. Thank you, Lord, for this life. We would live it if there was no heaven on the other side of it. Thank you for the privilege of getting to know you in the way that we do, Lord, by living this life. We consider ourselves blessed we give you praise for the privilege and the opportunity from this place this morning. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are not yet a Christian this morning, have not yet put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, there are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to answer your questions and pray with you.